In this episode, Russ Keefe, VP of Finance and Operations at Corelight, outlines the importance of transparency, describes why empathy is critical in finance, and explores how the war for talent is helping to change the role of the CFO. Hi, I'm Ross, and this is the CFO Playbook. Each week, you'll get insights from world-class financial leaders to help you grow your company, yourself, and face the challenges required of today's CFO. Russ, thank you for joining us today on the podcast. Thanks, Ross. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. You're a tenured Silicon Valley, battle-hardened Silicon Valley CFO finance leader. You've been in San Francisco for 25 years. You've seen so many incredible events and a huge rise in, in scale-ups and technology over that period of time. The one thing that I, I found very, very interesting about your background is that actually it's, it's common to see CFOs who have emerged from places like advisory firms or, or even started in-house finance. But in your case, you actually started with the SEC, which I thought was like a really fascinating foothold at the beginning of your career. And I was wondering, did that experience in the SEC influence like your attitude, now your approach to being a finance leader, given that actually you've you've seen that regulatory side so much earlier on in your career? Yeah, that's a great question, Ross. You know, one of the things that I continuously strive for is transparency within the company that I'm at. That's transparency to the employees, to my employees, transparency to investors, transparency to other executives, right? What I like to do is make sure that people understand how decision-making happens. For example, I'll walk them through how we do a top-down budget model, right? So I'll I'll take projections and say, hey, we'd like to grow at this percent year over year. So you get a top-line number. Then I'd like to spend, you know, and we, we would benchmark this against competitors or comparable companies. And you say, how much do they spend on sales and marketing? How much do they spend on R&D? How much do they spend in G&A? And you sort of come up with a top style model. And then you work on the bottoms up and you see, like, are, are we connected? Do those models connect or they disconnect, right? But I think it's that transparency of how do you get the targets that's super important. And that's just one example of where transparency is important. Another thing that you know has evolved more in Silicon Valley, and I think it's a really good thing, is transparency around fundraising, valuations. What, what is the stock price? What, what did we sell the stock at in, in the last preferred round, right? And talking to employees about that. There was a little bit of irony in, in the Valley in the early days of, oh, hey, I'm giving you these stock options. You should value these so much and that should make you such a loyal person. But I'm not going to tell you anything about them. I'm not going to tell you how many shares are outstanding. I'm not going to tell you what the value of the last round was. I'm not going to tell you what the per share price was. And luckily, that is eroding. So, you know, for example, one of the things that I do here at Corelight is I try to make sure to do like stock option 101. Make sure that people understand the basics of it. It's amazing how many people actually don't understand it. And then what happens is they're in a tech company for three, four years, then they feel super embarrassed. Like I've worked here for three, I've worked in this type of company three, four years, and I I, I don't know. Now there's so many more you know resources on the web where people can go and, and, and read about it. But I do think it is incumbent on the company to try to educate their employees. If I want you to value this equity as a as a meaningful part of your compensation, then I should educate you on why that is such. 
It takes a little bit more energy and calories to go do that. But the outcome is so much more beneficial and builds a foundation of trust so that when you go through hard times or you miss targets, people understand why they were set the way they were. And it's not like, oh, finance set unrealistic targets. Therefore, you know, they're the bad guys. And instead, we can just focus on, hey, some of the stuff we hoped had go, would go right didn't. How do we how do we fix it? You know, we expect that. That touches on the idea of like the, of making making those decisions together rather than the assumptions in a, a finance model being incorrect and therefore I can't, you know I didn't hit my target because of this that or the next. It sounds as if you really focus heavily on the collaboration up front and then at least a, a common understanding of why you're doing it and alignment on what, then what you're trying to achieve. Part of my advice to people who are you know in financial planning and analysis or people who are you know aspire to be CFOs is. I know I was this way early in my career, my goodness. I was just happy that I got the financial model to work, right? I like, okay, everything ties out. The financial model works. This is roughly what the board expects in terms of growth and spend and cash burn. And then I'd be like, okay, I'm done. And I'd sort of wash my hands of it. And now what I really aspire to do is make sure that it's connected deeply into the business. Does this match up with our pricing models? Is our engineering team feel like they have the resources to deliver against the roadmap that's necessary for that growth, right? And you really drive that to the bottoms up model and into actual practices of the company. And I think that's super important and something that I know early in my career I missed. I was just so excited that I got the budget to work in time to, you know, present it to the board. And then I'd sort of be like, okay, I'm done. <laughs> in that scenario where you are, say, working on a budgeting or or that type of planning process, what are the warning signs for you? And, and again, having been through this so many times, what are the warning signs when it isn't deeply embedded into the business and you might have a, a difference between like theory and reality? Ironically, some of the warning signs for me is when senior execs or, or other you know stakeholders in the budgeting process kind of just take the benchmarks that you give them and are like, okay, I guess this is what I have to work with. Or, oh, I guess this is what my team's quotas have to be. So yeah, th- that's it. You're the CFO. You told us what the budget has to be. You told us what the quotas have to be. So that must just be reality. And instead of them going and saying, oh, okay, let's take a quota, for example. Do I have enough target accounts in, in someone's patch to go and meet that quota? Do they have enough activity? Do they have enough pipeline? Are they you know, 5X covered on their pipeline to deliver against the quotas that we're setting for the team? So that's ironically some of the warning signs. And again, as an early CFO or a, a VP of finance, you're, you're sort of super excited, like, okay, I met with them. They said, it's fine. Oh, good, I've, I've done my job. And instead of now, as I've you know matured into, into the role, I actually challenge them. Okay, like how are you going to get to those goals? What target accounts do we have enough? Biz, you know, do we have enough business? Do we have enough potential customers in, say, you know, New York to hit those targets? Or do you really have enough resources on the engineering side to deliver against this roadmap? Hey, we're going to introduce a new product where we don't have that type of engineering expertise. How are we going to close that gap? Do we need to go higher? Are we going to use an outside firm? And it gets really detailed pretty quick. But I think you you really need to make sure to bolster the other executives around you to go and do that triple click into the numbers to make sure that they really, really understand it and really are resourced to go and deliver against the roadmaps. 
So in those scenarios, are you asking, because you're covering, again, you're looking at the budget, so you're looking at a company end-to-end, every function, every facet of it. And of course, that, that it can be hard to triple click on that and really understand the nuances during that process. So are you asking those questions to make them think or to hear the answer? It's to make them think. The warning sign to me is when they just answer, yes, I can go do that, right? Okay, like how can you, are you sure you can go do that? What is your plan to go and deliver against that? Do a Gantt chart of all the engineers and do you really have time to deliver against the product roadmap, for example? Or again, on the sales side, do we really have the resources and the pipeline and the marketing activity to generate the leads, to generate the opportunities, to generate the prospects and the customers to deliver against the revenue targets, right? And you really need to encourage them to build those bottoms up plans and to understand that. So, yeah, I think it is really important to have them thinking about how their business is going to operate, you know, and try to create that sense of ownership for them, that they are really in charge. They are the general manager of whatever business. That could be someone who is, a, you know, running just the tech support team. Okay, we're going to ship. We said we're going to triple the number of customers you have, but you're only going to add, you know, 10% more support people. How's that going to work? <laughs> sure, that's, uh, I maybe made a mistake in the modeling and that's how the modeling worked, but uh, is that really going to work? What what sort of automation are you building in? What sort of quality assurance do we have in the product development cycle that is going to ensure that our bugs don't grow just in direct correlation with the customer account? And how are we going to, how are we going to look at that? I like that attitude of uh, expecting negotiation. And if you don't get negotiation, you're in trouble. Ben Horowitz wrote a great blog post uh, and it's called How to Ruin Your Company with One Bad Process. And that bad process is the budgeting process. If you create a system whereby everyone knows they have to ask for twice as much because you're going to cut it in half, that's a bad process. Because then you get into these weird negotiations about everyone's inflating their budget because they know you're going to come back and, and cut it in half. And what I try to do is actually say, hey, early on, build that trust and say, no, let's let's go and build the bottoms up model. And from time to time, you're saying you should go spend more. Right. It's it's shocking sometimes that other execs are like, oh, my gosh, my CFO just told me to go spend more money. And it's like, yeah, you need to go spend more. We're building a new staff. Let's take a, a random example. We're building a new SaaS product. We don't have any SaaS engineering talent. We need to go go hire some talent to go do that. Otherwise, we're not going to deliver against the roadmap. And when you do that a couple of times, then that trust is built. And then you take away that negotiation aspect of it. So I would be careful with the word negotiation. I would say it's it's more that collaboration. Because if you get into a negotiation, again, that I, I would recommend that that blog post to folks, uh, Ben Horowitz, How to Ruin Your Company with one, one Bad Process, because it really talks about it. And I share that with my executive team every single budget season. We set that expectations of let's not operate this way as a team, because it can be a dangerous cycle. And so now we're obviously approaching, presumably, the budget season for most, as we're thinking, as many companies are thinking about the next year. Again, you'll have gone through this, and all CFOs will have gone through it many times, but you can have hone it because it's by nature an imperfect process, because you never have everything you need, you never have all the time you need. And now, of course, this year, we're in the midst of a pandemic, which creates more uncertainty. So then how do you approach that? Because it is one of the most important processes that you'll run, a company will run every year. And of course, it's led by the CFO and finance. How have you honed your approach over the years? One of the things that I've learned is to start early. 
start very early. We're actually staggered. So our, our year begins on February 1st. And we've already started thinking about what does the plan look like for next year, right? You need to start six months ahead and it needs to be really a continuous process. You need to be challenging the assumptions that you've made in the plan continuously so that when you do embark on that annual planning process, you have a deeper understanding of the business. And that's one of the things is, is being the CFO as a trusted advisor, right? I'm here to help, really help. I'm not here to you know, pass judgment on you. I'm not here to say, oh my gosh, you're over budget. Like, okay, maybe we had to overspend. Let's talk about that. We have that discussion at the, with the executive team. Hey, you know, this group needs another X number of dollars. Is there anyone out there who thinks that they could delay a couple of headcount a few months? Is that to, so that we can go fund this other project? And you have that collaboration amongst the team. And then they know when they're in a pinch, hey, I can come to the team and someone's going to say, raise their hand and say, you know what? I don't need two more accountants in, in this quarter. I'll, I'll give up those two headcount for six months. You can have them. And then we're going to roll. You'll make those trade-offs as a team. But again, starting that process early, building the trust with the executive team and even like the director levels below that is really powerful. In a way, I think that that is a healthy thing that you want to provoke anyway, because the idea of of shared sacrifice and shared investment, it sounds like an incredible bonding experience for an exec team or any team, actually. Any team, yeah, yeah. But yeah, among the executive team, it is really important to have that shared experience. And, and it's one of the things that I've really been working on here is to make sure that it is a team, right? Like if the salespeople don't meet their goals, it's not that the sales team failed, it's that we failed as a team. Maybe marketing didn't give them the leads. Maybe the product team slipped on the product roadmap so they didn't have the product to go sell. Like this is not a, a singular thing. And we as a team will succeed together and we as a team will fail together. Corelight has a large enterprise sales force, right? So those are folks who are out there in the world. They're, they're in London. You know, they're in Paris, they're in New York, they're, they're not at headquarters and they're out there every day pounding the pavement, trying to, you know, do what's right for the company try to get that sale and to have a deep respect for that work and not to be the people back in corporate like, oh my gosh, they're just not doing it. You have to go in and say, what's not working? How can we help you? Right. And if you go in with that approach, sometimes you will find that, hey, maybe there's a person who's their, their energy level isn't where it needs to be. But most of the time, what you'll get back is, hey, can we improve our messaging? Can we, you know, introduce a new feature or functionality within the product? And then you get everyone on board to go and go against that. So it's that's been a really fruitful path for us. You can hear it in, in the way that you describe the business is you seem to have a really in-depth knowledge and, and appreciation for the commercial part of the business. You've mentioned sales and marketing, but particularly sales. And one of the things I was wondering as I was looking, of course, at, at your journey and your background is that you led sales operations in a, in a previous life, in a previous role. How did that help shape your attitude now as, as, a, as a CFO and finance leader? Because, of course, I, I think that sales operations is on that intersection of like of the finance world, but also people as well, actually, and then the commercial side. So you're, you're often trying to triangulate between those three. So how did your experience in sales ops help shape the way that you approach things as a finance leader? I would encourage people who are you know on this journey to take an operations role when they have an opportunity to. 
it was one of the things that uh, I had the wonderful opportunity of working with Graham Smith, who became the CFO, longtime CFO of Salesforce.com. One of the things that he gave me the opportunity to do was run sales ops. And you just have a much deeper appreciation for the business beyond the, you know, the ones and zeros, beyond the, you know, the spreadsheets to the actual people, you know, to the emotional aspect of it, to the psychological aspect of it. Designing sales compensation plans, for example, gosh, rolling those out to salespeople and talking to them about it, it's a powerful experience. You really get a great feel for the business because those people will give you feedback, you know, and it is uh, sometimes you want it, sometimes you don't, but it is great feedback, right? And and going at them and, and talking with them about it and saying, here's why we designed it the way we did. You know, let's talk about it. And and you'll iterate with them even on the conceptual elements of the plan before it's rolled out. And then when you roll it out, you have some champions within the sales force who will, you know, as you're explaining it, say, no, this is why I, you know, I talked about this with Russ or with the sales ops teams. And this is why I believe in this element of the plan. You know, this is something that you guys, you know, the rest of the sales team can can do and achieve great things with it. So that ability to really deeply understand the business through an operations role, I think is is a nice feather in people's cap. Obviously, people can come through the other side, through the technical accounting side, through like a controller uh, role and others. But I would always encourage folks to really take that opportunity to take an ops role or at least strive to learn what those people are going through on a day-to-day basis whether it's in sales or marketing or whatnot, right? Like, for example, in the pandemic, our marketing teams sometimes have a challenge. We were a very event-driven. Oh my gosh, wow, what a challenge in the, in, in the time of the pandemic. And so you have to learn to pivot. And how can we help them do that? How can we go on an exploratory journey to figure out opportunities to do things in a remote environment that are as fruitful as, say, a trade show? Right. And so one example at Corelight that we did is we came up with the idea of doing capture the flags. So we're a cybersecurity company and a capture the flag is an exercise that cybersecurity professionals do to, you know, kind of like a, a, you know, a penetration testing or, hey, how can I use data to go and find the bad guys in my network? Right. And so we, we started doing those and they were immensely popular early on. Like it was really an incredible, you know, discovery for us. And now we have modified that over time where we'll have a big customer. We'll we'll go in instead of doing a, a proof of value with the customer, we'll actually do a capture of the flag with them using Corelight data so they can see the power of it, right? And so it's morphed over time and just going on that path of innovation and finding new ways. And again, going back to a role that or a growth opportunity for people in in the finance world is is to be involved in some of those projects, right? And really try to help it beyond just okay, I'm going to give you X dollars to go run this experiment, right? So, but actually follow the experiment. What's working? How many leads did we get from it? How many of those leads converted, right? And and really understanding it deeply, I think, is is quite a, an important part to gain the empathy of the other element of the other aspects of the business gain the empathy of the challenges that the engineering team is running into, the marketing team, the operations team, the support team, so that you can always approach those business leaders with that empathy. 
I love the way that you described the the fact of you know talking about compensation plans with with sales organizations, sales teams as a powerful experience. Uh, I've I've been there myself, and so I I I, I appreciate the power. What was fascinating for me and maybe what I learned about it is that if there's one thing you get when you're doing things like, say, sales compensation for large sales organizations is the power of incentives. It's like economics in a way is that you understand the incentives that are there. It's a, it's a direct cause and effect of what you create, what you build in your plan will influence behavior. And of course, that can influence company results and direction. And of course, that applies right across the company. And it even applies into your negotiations with investors and funders because you've got all of these different incentives that you build in. And so I think that within those operational roles, there are lessons that you can extrapolate into so many other areas. Exactly. And that was the sales ops piece was where I happened to dive deeply into earlier in my career. And that that gave me a great deal of empathy. But it also made me realize it's not just sales. Like the engineering team also has those similar challenges. The marketing team has those challenges. And just gaining that empathy for the challenges that exist within each element or, or group within the company. So then how do you help your team build that empathy and then start to learn in a much more nuanced way about how the different parts of the business work? That starts at the interviewing process. I make sure to interview for that skill set, for that mindset, if you will, not just the technical skills of, hey, are you, you know, if you're a finance person, are you an Excel wizard? And do you understand the basics of, you know, corporate financial planning analysis? But do you have that empathy and do you see part of your role as being a trusted advisor and someone who is a service oriented person? Right. So we talk about this team and I've been very fortunate at Corelight that that I have a great team who has in many ways taught me how to be more empathetic in, in ways because we really do have that service orientation. Right. My team is not called the finance team. We're actually called business services. We talk about. What is our role? Our role is, and our customers and for the business services team is everyone else in the company. Our customers are the employees. Our customers are the managers. Our customers are the, you know, the VPs or, or, or the C-suite, right? And we're meant to be trusted advisors for them. And if we see things that go sideways, like how can we help them solve that problem? We're not there to go and beat them up. Like, hey, you went over budget X, Y, and Z okay, we went over budget, like, how can we solve this going forward? Is this something that we need to address and fund? And should we go and talk about how we can fund this going forward? And being that trusted advisor and, and really looking at internal customers and employees or internal you know, folks and employees as our customers, right? I think that's the important part. To build that trust and empathy, you have to really understand their business. So that's the other thing, like when I joined Corelight, I, it was the first cybersecurity company I'd been to. So I went and read a bunch of books that are on the early days of cybersecurity, right? Just to have a sense of, of what people were doing. And it's been a great part of the journey. You could theoretically outsource all of GNA. You could outsource a lot of it. And, and that just leads to that idea that we really are a service organization designed and built to deliver you know, services for the company. And that touches on another topic that different guests, previous guests have brought up, which is the idea of never forgetting the customer as well. So you, you mentioned that your internal customer, of course, are all of the managers, the different departments that you're supporting with that business service. But of course, you don't want to lose sight of the end customer because ultimately 
the more you abstract away from that, sometimes you can lead, it can lead to maybe missing the woods for the trees and then, and then also making the wrong decisions. So do you try and inject that type of focus or at least an awareness of what, what's happening to the end customer again, with the way that you, and the way that your teams operate? Absolutely. And we do this really well as a, as a company for every company, all hands that we have, you know, we try to bring in a customer to talk about their experience. Why did they choose Corelight? What was it, the differentiation between Corelight and the competitors and what things made Corelight stand out to that end user customer, right? And those are ones that, you know, all of us in the entire company are engaged with those conversations. And I think that's really important. And we look at that all the way through. Every single time we get an order, we're a channel company. So every time we get an order, we thank thank you for your order. We really appreciate it. Here's the next steps of what we're going to be doing. Here's how we're going to deliver it. Thanks again for your order, right? And we try to really do that. And each and every time we engage with customers, because again, they have choices out there in the world. They can choose to work with different companies. They can choose to work with our competitors and just trying to be that entity that leans into the customers and really cares deeply about their success is really important. Corelight has done this in, in an amazing way. We have created a, we call it a technical account manager role, but it's really under customer success. And we really strive for them to be successful. And we invest a lot in that. And the folks in those types of roles are really highly trained, really skilled professionals who deeply want the customer to be successful, right? And, 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 and it's not that we're just trying to extract the next dollar. As a matter of fact, we specifically for those teams don't necessarily, they're not incented to go get that next you know, purchase order from them. They want them to be technically successful with what they bought today, right? And of course, they're going to ask a question about, hey, you know, is there another area in your company where we may also be able to help you? But that's after they built that trust. That's after they built that initial success, that implementation has been successful. Then we go and think about, okay, now can we expand? But we know we need to prove the value of the purchase that they've made. And that's really important. And that can be the tiniest customer to the biggest customer, right? It doesn't matter because I think, and this is true in, in many businesses, the world tends to be a little bit smaller than you think. And one bad customer experience can really, you know, get out there in the wild, right? All the different messaging boards. And it works in reverse. You know, one of the reasons I think Corelight's been successful is that word is getting out there in the cybersecurity world that we really strive for the customer success. And we really want that to be something where we're providing an opportunity for those institutions and entities that had deployed Corelight to have a safer network environment, to have their employees' data be safe, their intellectual property to be safer. And, and we're working with some of the biggest government agencies, you know, some critical institutions, critical infrastructure type companies. And so protecting, helping those companies protect the assets, the intellectual property, the data, you know, the operations. You see it every week there's a new talk about what's the latest cybersecurity breach, whether it be Colonial Pipeline or Sunburst or whatnot. Those are huge breaches that really have real-world impact. And how can we help those people be safe? And I think that's one another thing that's important to work with both your team and the company overall is you really need to have a mission. Just being a, a for-profit business isn't necessarily enough 
in the modern world, you really need to be a mission-oriented company. And I think that's critical to have people sign up for the mission. And that's one of the reasons I joined Corelight is I truly do believe in the mission, right? Helping protect the world's networks and make them safer is something that will benefit everyone. When you describe the way that you hire and the fact that you're hiring for people with empathy, it points towards an aspect of the as finance leaders, again, CFOs changing and that role evolving from what would be, you know, 20, 25 years ago would be much more operational, much more back office per se. And whereas now actually finance and particularly the finance leader is expected to be a strategic advisor, uh, in some ways a coach to the CEO and a leader within the company. Have you seen the expectations on finance leaders and CFOs evolve in that direction over the past 10, 20 years? Absolutely. Finance, sales ops, I think all of those have changed over the last 10 to 20 years. Before it was all about control, compliance. That was really the focus was control and compliance, right? And now it's really a focus on how do we help grow the business? How do we, you of course care about financial controls and, and regulatory compliance. People would often take that to, you'd have internal rules that had no regulatory implication. Your sales ops team or your finance team would just say, no, sorry, you're, you're two points over the discount that you're approved to do. We're not, no. And they, and they would just say no, and they would just like reject an order. Whereas like now that would not be acceptable in my world. You know, what you do is, hey, what happened here? Let's talk about it. Why did we have to go to this additional discount? Like, let's have the conversation. Of course, we want to win the deal. Of course, we want to make this customer successful. How do we get there? And okay, let's talk about how we we design our programs around that, right? Rather than just being that sort of no person who's just, you know, here's the book I've been given and no one's allowed to color outside the lines. And that's particularly true in the early days of a company, right? You know, in the early days, you need to redefine those lines quite often, right? And so you need people who are comfortable in that space where there's a significant amount of gray area. And how do we go and learn from each customer, from each deal negotiation experience? How do we learn from that? And how does that inform our you know, sales playbook? Or how does that inform our internal guidelines? And, and should we create more open space for people to operate and make decisions? Because the bottom line is you want to hire people who are smart, who are motivated, why? Because I want them to be able to make decisions on their own. I want them to make decisions that are best for the company. And you have to empower that and you have to let people do that. And you sometimes have to let them make mistakes or do things that, hey, I wouldn't have done it that way. Maybe it wasn't a mistake. Maybe maybe now that we double clicked in it, wow, I, I can learn from this. And maybe we should tweak the rules or tweak the programs that we have in place to account for this new new aspect that we hadn't previously thought of. What do you think is driving that change, so that away from control and compliance towards much more of a growth mindset and, and collaborative approach? I think it's just really kind of the evolution of the relationship of a company and the employees as part of it. I think the, the war for talent is part of it. If you want to go out and get the best and brightest, you really need to create opportunities for them to you know spread their wings and and take on new challenges and and by just giving them a, a rote playbook that they have to stay and color within the lines, 
people are not interested in that type of role anymore. As we're scaling up, one of the things we constantly look at is how do we automate, right? And this is something that is good for people who are growing in the, in the finance world. How do I automate processes? Because what you want to do is you want to eliminate the sort of redundant manual work and create automation. And it's really important as you scale. And it's it's interesting because what I found is the automation, any automation that you put in is probably good for about 18 months if you're really scaling up. And then you need to you know automate again. Creating those opportunities for folks to do that type of work is so much more enriching than here's a rope playbook, you know, stay within the lines. And I think the war for talent has really driven a lot of that. Not only the war for talent, but then the benefits that companies have accrued by doing that type of work and, and hiring people with that, it takes, again, more calories from a management perspective, but it's much more beneficial for the company as well, right? So now you have much more engaged employees who are excited to be there, who are looking for ways to improve and know that they have the latitude to go do it. And you mentioned automation, which, of course, is the recurring theme but and it's existed in other parts of companies for a long while. So sales automation, marketing automation, those are established categories now. But what seems to be happening, and for your your team, business services, but particularly within finance as well, there's an increasing, seems to be an increasing interest and in level of automation that's occurring. What do you see are, are the big opportunities for automation within finance and within that, that area of specialism? It is such a fun space now because, as you noted, like this is a space that's really blossoming right now. There are so many different opportunities out there to do automation, whether it's from Salesforce or whether it's you know moving from a QuickBooks to NetSuite and then integrating NetSuite with Salesforce, putting in tools like a Concur or Expensify to help manage the expense report process. That's another great one to automate, right? The last thing you wanna do is have a, a bunch of accounting clerks who are you know, checking the box on manual expense reports, right? So you can automate all of that with these tools. Not only are you automating the, the approvals, but you're automating the input of that data then into your accounting system. So you're taking away tons of just manual laborious activities and automating it. So expense reporting and, and that then the early days of the expense reporting that's been around for a while now that's moving in more broadly to other areas of just corporate spend right so we recently implemented a tool called airbase and we run almost all of our corporate spend through that now and again it's taking away the manual coding of invoices i remember the old days when you know literally i'd be handwriting the account code and department on each invoice and handing it to the accounting team so that they can then go coded against this particular account. All that's done now via a system. Someone says, hey, I want to go spend this money. It gets approved. They've already entered in. It's this category. It's that category. And then that data gets uploaded into NetSuite. And therefore, the people who, who used to do that activity, they're now able to analyze that data and say, does this make sense? You know, is there any anomalies or, or do we see any errors there as opposed to, oh, I need to like make sure that we're checking the boxes, expense categorization or, or whatnot. And I think what you're alluding to as well is that there's a, at the intersection of banking and software, there seem to be new categories emerging, which for you as a, as a finance leader is, is something that, that you've now got as a tool that you never had in the past. 
That's right. Yeah, for a company, for example, the size of CoreLake, we would have had a much larger accounting or finance team 10 or 15 years ago than we have today. Because luckily, I've been so fortunate that I have super smart people in those groups who are able to put in this automation because, quite frankly, they don't want to do that. <laughs> they don't want to do that on their day jobs. And so I'm super excited. I'd love to go and spend $10,000 or whatnot on some tool for a year that's going to you know, take away hundreds of hours of work, manual work. And so I've been really fortunate to have a team that goes and, and gets those things. And that's what you want. You want people who are excited to go learn about the technology as well, because it does, you know, it does take energy. You have to go and, oh, oh I've got to try two or three of these things. And, and how do they really work? And, and you have to get really detailed to understand that. But they know that at the end of the tunnel, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. And that's that this process is completely automated. And I'm going to have to tweak it going forward. But my goodness, I'm going to save hundreds of hours of, of manual work if we can get this up and running. So that part is super exciting. Russ, as we as we draw to a close, I often like to ask our guests what advice they would have for others. So thinking of those people who perhaps not yet, they're listening, that are not yet CFOs, but are aspiring to that role and to where you are today, what would you advise them to do to help you know achieve that goal? So just to reiterate on some of the topics we've talked about, one, I, I love the idea of people getting into an operations role or at least taking a very operational mindset. And then the topic we just talked about, like don't be afraid of new technology, actually embrace it. And you should be going out and talking to other folks around, hey, what's working at your company? How do have you solved this problem? Which leads me to the third area, which is trying to get that network. It's become more and more prevalent and easier to do with LinkedIn and other groups where you can get networked into people who are in a similar situation as you. So you can have those discussions. You know, hey, what's better, Expensify or Concur or Airbase or, you know, and you can have those discussions. What's worked in your company? So those are the three things I would really encourage people to do. I think that's great advice for listeners as we draw to close. Uh, Russ, thank you so much for spending the time with us today. For anyone uh, who's listening that would like to connect with you somewhere online or follow you, where's the best place for them to do that? Right now, the best place for that is, is on LinkedIn for me. That's my primary professional sort of place that I communicate. Russ, thank you again for joining us. Thank you for having me. One last thing. If you have a question you'd love to ask a guest, visit cfoplaybook.fm and submit your question there. This show is brought to you by Soldo, the brighter way to manage business spending and expenses. With Soldo, you can control every expense, track spend in real time, automate financial reporting, and then use those insights to fuel growth. Learn more at soldo.com.